I want to encourage you here today how that God has made everything available to us. He didn't spare his son. He loves us. He cares for us. He's there for us. He knows exactly what we're going through. Uh, like I said, aside from a pandemic and what he said, we already have life issues and circumstances and challenges, and we already had sickness, and we already had death, and we already had rebellious children, and we already had broken down cars and bills to be paid. We always have challenges in life. And really, everything in life is spiritual, isn't it? Because everything in life, there's a spiritual lesson. There, there is something to be learned. And in every circumstance of life, in particular those that are challenging or difficult or, in, or encompass suffering, it's always a threat and a challenge to your faith in Christ. Because we're in a warfare. We're in a fight every single day. We're in a warfare and we're in a fight. And we can never afford to be lazy or neglect the things that are, pertain to our salvation because the devil goes about as a roaring lion, seeking to see who he can devour. And he never takes a break. He never takes a rest. He's always after you. Your flesh is always after you. We live in a world system, in the allurements of this world system. But we're in a fight. We're in a warfare. And it's of utmost importance that we keep our hands to the plow, especially in times like this, and don't allow ourselves to be lulled to sleep, but retain a particular fervency and, and, a, and an ardent uh, spirit towards the Lord and just keep fighting the good fight of faith. And if you recall, last week's scripture was Paul's encouragement to Timothy, the young pastor in Ephesus who was facing many challenges in a pagan society who's a pastor over Christians. And Paul is encouraging his son in the faith. Preach the word. Do those things which pertain to godliness. Uphold a standard of the faith. And he encouraged him, don't allow fear to enter into your life. You've not been given a spirit of fear, but a, but a spirit of love and of a sound mind and of power. We've been given a spirit of God that is not like this world to face the challenges around us. And I, in that vein of thought, I want to carry on with the encouragement that comes from the Apostle Peter in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. That's my only scripture I'm going to read to you here today. 1 Peter 4 and verses 7 and 8. It says this. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Read it again. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, the title of the message this morning is a little tongue twister, but I want you to listen to it very closely. The title of the message here today is, Above All in the Midst of the End of All. What is above all in the midst of the end of all? Drawing from those two portions of Scripture, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace towards us, which is always sufficient and adequate to give us the strength 
to go against those things we face in everyday life, God. The trials and the, the fiery trials and temptations that we face, God, help us to see in the positive that it's for the benefit of our faith, that we can become purged and purified by the testing of our faith, which is more precious than gold or silver. So help us to submit to the process what that life brings and help us to submit to your authority and your sovereignty in our lives and be encouraged by the fact that we are children of God and our inheritance has nothing to do with this world, but our inheritance is in heaven and that we're merely sojourners and pilgrims in this world. And what we face is only light and momentary and temporary compared to the future glory which we shall experience when we stand with you face to face. Give us a special fervency to love you and to love your people in these end times that we live in. Help us most of all to have a love for you and love for people. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen and amen. To read those two scriptures only makes sense in light of why Peter was writing this entire letter. There's first and second Peter. And at the very beginning of this letter, this first letter from Peter, Peter is writing to a group of people. It's Gentile Christians who are inside of the Roman Empire and much like the same environment in which Paul was writing to Timothy last week, Peter is writing to Christians who are experiencing an intensified persecution from a tyrannical emperor whose name is Nero. This letter was written in A.D. 64, the same year that Nero set Rome on fire and for six days the capital of Rome, it burned to the ground. Nero was a madman. He had, he had a desire and a lust for more land and to build more things. He took advantage of this fire and he built what he wanted to build on this land that was destroyed and raised to the ground. And it's during this period of time that he chose the Christians to be the scapegoat for this atrocity. And where the Christians had experienced uh, little, little pockets of persecution, usually from the Jews. They were kind of inconsequential to the Roman Empire. They're just kind of seen as just this, this Jewish sect that had peculiar beliefs. And they were just kind of inconsequential to the Roman Empire. But now they are, they are used as a scapegoat by Nero and all of the Roman Empire. And there's this period in AD 64, this period of intensified persecution against Christians. Not just in Rome, but throughout the Roman Empire. It's the same environment in which Paul is writing to Timothy that we discussed last week. And Peter is writing to a, a group of people, various people, who are experiencing persecution. They're experiencing suffering. They're experiencing interruption in their life. They're experiencing probably being blacklisted. Oh, this person's a Christian. Don't employ them anymore. Don't, if they're a blacksmith, don't use them anymore. If, if they're a farmer, don't buy from them. And they're being persecuted and bullied. And they're even being taken to the point of being killed. And Nero would use all kinds of terrible uh, means of killing the Christians. He would, he would uh, gather Christians up and put them in animal skins and take ravenous dogs who hadn't eaten and would allow the dogs to maul the Christians to death. 
This is where we see the Colosseum and, and uh, Christians were used as sport to see them torn to bits by beasts, by lions and tigers in the Colosseum, and people would watch as Christians were torn to bits. Nero was so demented that he would put Christians up on a post and light them on fire at, at, at dusk and use them as human torches. This is what the Christians were facing at this time. And the purpose for, Paul, the, for Peter to write this was to encourage the people of God who have found this life in Christ and yet there's this warfare they're facing. There's this challenge of life. There's this mass persecution that their very lives are threatened. You know, when you read about this and you read about the experiences of modern Christians across the world who live in tyrannical governments, we have it so easy, church. We have it so good. We get bullied a little bit here and there and we, we feel so sorry for ourselves. But truly, right now, in America, our lives are not threatened. Our lives are not threatened. We're not, we're not, we don't have the, the prospect of bloodshed. Not yet we don't. We are bullied. We are persecuted to a point. But physical harm does not come to us. We, we have great religious freedom afforded to us in America. Now, thank God for that. But we do face particular suffering and persecution and just challenges of life. And you need to be encouraged as well in this fight of faith. You need to be encouraged in this midst of this mass interruption that's affected really everyone. All of us are going through something. None of us are in heaven yet. And so we are in a warfare. And there's no place of neutrality. We are always constantly fighting. But we have a victor in Christ Jesus. And we know he's already won. And we are winners through him. And in the end... When you read Revelation, you know what you find out? We win in the end. But between now and then, there's this period of time that we have to stay encouraged, don't we? We have to stay encouraged. You know, you may get a phone call that you totally did not expect, and mass discouragement can flood into your life. Something may happen at your workplace. You may lose your job, and just like that, your life is interrupted. You may have a rebellious son or daughter who, whose, whose soul is in the balance and you're burdened over their very spirit and soul and their eternal destination. We face all kinds of things. And these Christians, they needed encouragement. They needed encouragement. In light of persecution or really any challenge to your faith, this persecution, it threatens to cause, number one, hopelessness. How many of you have ever been hopeless? Does it, I don't care what kind of experience you, it may be. It may be spiritual. It may be financial. It may be physical problems to the point where you just kind of come to the end of your rope and you just feel hopeless on a particular matter. And you're like, there's no answers for this. There's no light at the end of this tunnel. And in the midst of persecution as these Christians are facing or in the midst of any challenge you may face, you are tempted to allow hopelessness to set in. And so because this can cause hopelessness, Peter says in this same letter, he tells them, blessed be God who has begotten us again to a living hope. We have a living hope through Jesus Christ who is not dead. He's not in the grave. He has risen from the grave. And we have hope in a living Christ who has ascended on high and who lives forevermore to make intercession for you. 
We have an inheritance which is incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. What you have in this life, it can be taken away, but what you have in Christ Jesus can never be taken away. They can take away your livelihood, Christian. They can take away your children. They can take away your very life. But they will not take away your inheritance that you have reserved for you in heaven. Once and for all, when you stand before Jesus Christ, when the consummation of all things come to pass, you'll stand in the presence of God and final salvation will come. No man can take that away. You have hope in Jesus Christ. When this persecution or challenges come in life, it threatens to cause fear or timidity or cowardice into your life. When someone says, shut up, don't talk about Jesus, and and they pressure you to water down or to compromise the gospel in some way, in some form or fashion, you're tempted to withdraw in fear or timidity and cowardice. And this is why Paul told Timothy last week that we looked at, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. God will give you the boldness, the courage, the bravery that you don't have in yourself and allow you to meet the situation at hand. The world needs to see bold Christians who are not cowardly and timid, and who make no apologies or excuses for proclaiming the truth of the Word of God. They need to see, lived out in you, whether if you speak it or you live it, they need to see people who live what they say they believe. Live in boldness and courage. And I won't be silenced. Not that I'm going to be obnoxious, but I'm going to be full of love and proclaim the truth simultaneously. I'm not going to become a coward. I'm not going to cower down. I'm not going to be fearful of the threats of government, of people, or of my boss at the workplace. Thirdly, this persecution or challenges in your life, it can bring bitterness or hardness into your life. How many of you have ever experienced, don't answer, you've been tempted or you've allowed yourself, you've given yourself over to bitterness and hardness in your heart. Maybe nobody saw it. But because of a life situation, because of a death in your family, because of a job loss, because of divorce, because of whatever it is, you're tempted and you give over to bitterness and hardness. And and you, you throw a pity party for yourself and you wonder, why God? Why has this come into my life? Why have you allowed this to happen in my life? And we're tempted to bitterness and hardness. And this is why... Peter, in this very book, this is why he tells them, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors. They are in a tyrannical government, and he's telling them, submit to the authority over your life. As a Christian, you're not called to start a revolution. It's one thing to speak as a citizen of a country, but as a Christian, you do not bring change by picking up arms and starting a revolution. You're called to live in the same spirit of Christ. That's why he always says, also says, servants, submit to your masters, to your employers, even those who are mean and harmful to you. Because what profit is is it to you if you're rewarded for doing good? But there's greater profit if you have a great spirit and you do good even when you're persecuted for it.
And he says, ultimately, because we're called to walk in the same spirit of Christ. Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Here's Jesus right here. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. When you are tempted to give yourself over to bitterness and hardness because of your life circumstances, think of Jesus. He was as a lamb led to the slaughter. He did not open his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. We do not respond in kind as Christians. We do not respond hate for hate. We respond with blessing and love when we are persecuted. This is also why in this same letter, this is why Peter says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Here's the reason why. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. You're called to live a life that is unlike the world around you. You're called to live a supernatural life. And God has given us every strength to be victorious. And lastly, before we look at our scripture When you encounter this persecution or hardness of life or circumstances, it threatens and tempts you to run back to your former life, to give up altogether. When you are so pressed in on every side, when you're so tempted, when things are just not going your way, you're tempted just to give up. How many of you have been tempted just to give up? Lord, it's too hard. I'm tired of fighting against my flesh, I'm tired of fighting against the devil. It's just just too hard. I might as well just give in to everything around me and just go back to my former life. And these Christians were tempted to do this. As you and I are tempted to do this. And this is why Peter says to them as well. He says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Beloved, you are sojourners. You are pilgrims. Live as people who are not anchored to this temporary life. But keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't give your life over to the worldly lust and the things you once lived for. But live for Jesus, and a world will take notice. They will see. And when they accuse you of evil doing, they'll be ashamed because they have nothing to point at in your life. You're living for Jesus. But ultimately, Peter says, and we're going to look at our scripture here in a very quick moment. But ultimately, G- Peter says that there is a benefit to persecution. There's a benefit to testing. And that it brings a certain purity and purge to our faith. Those of you who work out, or those of you who like to run, if you can tell from my dad bod, I don't like to. I haven't worked out in a while. But when I did, you would take those weights, and it's all about resistance. The only way to to become stronger and to increase in endurance is by resistance. That's the only way. That's the only way. And so when someone goes to lift weights, 
They're actually tearing, they're making micro, micro tears in their muscles, and when that muscle heals over again, it increases in strength and in mass. The only way to grow, the only way to grow in endurance is to be challenged. And the only way to purify gold or silver is to put it into the fire so that all the impurities can be removed. And Christianity is most pure, and your faith is most pure when you're challenged. When you face challenge, the God you say you serve, the God you say you love, the faith you have in him, is it really what it is? Let's see. Let's put it to the test. Much like Job. Oh, the devil said to, to, to God, oh, he only loves you, he only serves you because you've blessed him so much. And God said, okay, put him to the test. And at the end of it all, though he was not a perfect man, he maintained his integrity. He did not sin. He did not turn his back against God. And he loved God because his faith was genuine. In challenges and in circumstances of life and persecution, it will test the genuineness of our faith. And listen, as we see, I think this is only the beginning, but through this pandemic and through this virus, it has opened the doorway for governments to power grab and to impose things that I think are, are quite um, overreaching. I understand they're trying to look out for public health, but they are definitely overreaching in their power and their ability to control people's lives. There was a mandate a few weeks ago, and I'm sure it's still in place, where you could go to church in California, but you couldn't sing. How ridiculous is that? Now, I get the health stuff. I get the facts. I get all that. But if I'm going to church, and if I'm already there, I'm going to sing. And the government's not going to tell me that I can't sing. And now they're saying you can't worship. You can't, you can't go back to church. Everybody, they're doing a lockdown again. And there's a big church there in L.A. that says, in good conscience, we're not going to lock down. We can't. We're not going to. We have to, we have to a really big church. We have to obey God rather than man. But it's in this type of environment. Are we really going to say are we really going to trust God? Are we really going to maintain our integrity and our faith in him? So this brings me to, just as that introduction, this brings us to our scripture in chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. When he says the end of all things, this is not a foreboding or doomsday or apocalyptic message. When you hear the end is coming, right? When you hear that phrase, the end is coming, it sounds like doomsday. It sounds like, it sounds like an and you're speaking in apocalyptic terms. It, it feels like, how many of you have ever seen the, the animated, kids animated um, uh, a movie called Ice Age. You ever seen that? Where the dinosaurs, it's the Ice Age and the end of the world is coming and all the dinosaurs are trying to migrate and the end of the world is coming, it's coming, it's coming. That is not what Peter is saying here. This is actually, this is actually a statement to encourage the Christians. The end of all things is at hand. What he's actually saying is not the end in the sense of an end to a chronological order of things. Not just everything is going to black out. But that when he says the end is almost coming, it means 
And a, a goal which you wanted to achieve is coming. The consummation of all things. What he's saying is the imminent return of Jesus and your final salvation is almost here. The little 30, 40, 50 years you have to live is nothing. The end is almost here. Not just the end of your life and boom, the lights are turned out. No, just the beginning of eternal life is almost here. When you run a race, when you run a race, you run it not just to finish, not just to see the end. You run a race to finish and get a reward. The end of a race is only the, the beginning of a celebration and reward. In this life in Christ, we're not running it just to see the end. We're running it to see Jesus. And when he says the end of all things is near, that's a source of encouragement saying you're about to see Jesus. You're about to see Jesus, whether if he comes back or you die very shortly. The end is almost here. Your goal is just in sight. Hang on. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep hanging on. Keep trusting. Keep praying. Now, alternatively, for the unbeliever, this is a foreboding quotation for the unbeliever. This is a sobering reminder of judgment for the unbeliever because they're not secure in Christ. For those who, in Noah's time, Noah was building this ark for 100 years and only eight people were saved. But as long as you are in the ark, as long as you receive the warnings and the signs around you, if you were in the ark, you were saved. In the ark. And we are in Christ. We have nothing to fear about. As as dark as it may get, we should be all the more encouraged that we're secure and safe in Christ. When the rains come, when things come against our life, we should know all the more, I'm secure in Christ. I'm in the ark. I don't have to fear. I don't have to despair. I don't have to be hopeless. I don't have to think that God has forsaken me. I don't have to become bitter or hard. The end is almost here. I can see the finish line. I can see, I can just... Fathomed, I can see Jesus' face. I'm going to be in his very presence at the end of all these things. I have an inheritance laid up for me in heaven, waiting for me. The end is almost here. So when you hear that, be encouraged. And this would be a source of encouragement to these individuals. It is at hand to indicate the nearness of our final salvation Romans 13, 11 says, And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Some of you have been a Christian for a long time. You've always heard it's the last days. Surely, surely it's the last days. It gets, it's getting worse. It's getting worse. And that's as true as ever. It's as true as ever. Because today, our final salvation is nearer than yesterday. And a year ago, and 20 years ago, and 30 years ago. Every day, every moment, every second, every year that you live, our final salvation is nearer and nearer and nearer. nearer. And thus he says, so awake out of sleep. Don't be found sleeping. The imminent return of Jesus is here. Don't be as the foolish virgins who didn't leave the oil in their lamps and they had no oil for their lamps, but the other ones who had, were adequately ready to receive the bridegroom. And that when he came, they didn't know when he was going to come, but they knew he was coming. They were ready. They were ready because they were alert and prepared. And the same applies to us. The end of all things 
is at hand. So be encouraged in that. With the understanding, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, he says, be serious and watchful in your prayers. This word serious, it means self-controlled or sound-minded. And to be watchful means sober-minded in your prayers. Much like what like we read last week, how that the Spirit of the Lord has given us a sound mind. That when everything is crazy and chaotic around us, just like Noah, he knew the will of God, he knew what was coming, he knew that he had the ark, he had the plan of salvation that is to be saved from this, this, this flood that would come. There was no chaos in the life of Noah and his family when the rain started to come. And if you're in Christ, there should be no chaos. There should be no confusion, ultimately no confusion because you know who you've believed in. You're standing upon the solid rock, which is Jesus Christ. You have a sound mind. You're anchored to the rock. You're not anchored to your emotions. You're not governed by your feelings. You're not following purely what the government says and what the CDC says and what the governor says and what the president says. You're not glued to the news. You are anchored to Jesus Christ. And so there's a stability in your life. There's a soundness of mind in your life. There's a clarity in your life. You know, you think about war stories and you watch war movies. Oftentimes, those men who did heroic things are asked, were you scared? And what makes you so brave? And most often you will hear them say, it's not that I'm brave, and yes, I was absolutely scared, but you just did what you had to do. And oftentimes, when you read stories where there were men who were fearful and scared, all it took was for one brave man to encourage the people. You know, the, the, the thought in your mind where the man who's carrying the American flag gets shot down, and another person grabs the flag and rallies the troops, and he leads them into the front lines, and everybody sees this man's bravery and sees this man's courage and sees, wow, if he's going into the heat of battle, I'm going to follow him. It seems that this person is, is unmoved by the bullets whizzing past their head, and that should be the same, same mentality that we have. And we know we won't be taken out. We, we know we won't be destroyed. We can go headlong into the front lines of whatever we face because we know God's on our side and we can have a clear mind and we don't have to be in a fetal position in a foxhole, unanchored and unhinged. But we have Jesus Christ as a sure foundation and anchor for our soul. He gives you that self-control. He gives you that sound mind. He causes us to have a serious and watchful, sober-mindedness and attitude, and in that mentality, in that realm in which you live, you can then have this unhindered fellowship in prayer with God. And then he says, and here's where we bring it down, here's where we end, and above all things, above all things, I've said a lot of stuff, Peter's saying, I've said a lot of stuff up to this point, I've encouraged you in many ways. I've provoked your faith. I've challenged you. I've encouraged you. But above all, the most preeminent and most important thing is this. Above all things, have fervent love. Have fervent love. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Love is the greatest thing. 
And without it, you can do nothing. You can accomplish nothing. This word fervent, this word fervent, in the original Greek, it was used to describe the taut and stretched muscles of a runner. That word is used to describe the taut or the, the lengthened or stretched muscles of a runner who's stretching themselves out in full length, running towards an intended goal and prize. This is a kind of love that is so fervent that it stretches itself and gives itself to the maximum capacity that it can go. It's not a lazy love. It's not a neglectful love. It's not a lackadaisical love. It's a love that is fervent and earnest and on its toes, running forward, running towards needs, running towards Jesus, running towards the hurting, running towards the darkness even, because we are lights of the world. It's a love that cannot be overcome by the hatred of this world. And it covers a multitude of sins. He's quoting Proverbs 10, 12, Peter is. You know, we live in a culture which, there's a new phrase that has recently been coined called cancel culture. How many of you have heard about that? Cancel culture. And the idea is that there are groups of people or a person who will dig up all kinds of things in somebody's past. Let's say a person is slated to host a, an award ceremony or is, or is, is tapped to, to lead a particular organization or company. And people will, will go to this person's Twitter feed and go back 10, 15 years and see what little thing did this person say that can disqualify them from doing this thing. And, and the idea is that we're going to find dirt on this person and they're going to be canceled. We're going to ruin their lives. We're going to remove their livelihoods just because we can. Because we don't like what they've said. We don't like what they, they stand for. You understand what I'm saying? We're going to cancel this person. They have no right to speak. And we're going to dig up all this dirt. And we're going to ruin their lives. That's the spirit of the world. And increasingly you're seeing this. People who are so easily offended. I don't like what you said. I disagree with it. So you know what? I'm going to ruin your life now. You're going to be canceled because you have no right to speak your opinion, which imposes upon my opinion. You make me uncomfortable. And you see people, people's lives ruined. This is in the secular. You just see this increasingly, increasingly. There's no second chances. There's no forgiveness. There, there's no desire to, to allow the person to explain themselves. No, you're canceled. You're done. That's the spirit of the world. That's the spirit of the age. And we live in a, venge, a vengeful culture. We live in a culture which is an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. You harm me, I'm going to harm you just the same and even worse. I'm going to take you out. And when you do me wrong, I'm going to use that as a, as a means of power to get back at, at you. And there's this vengeful, vindictive attitude that you see in the world, the world system, the spirit of this age. And they're going to use every opportunity to lord power over somebody who has done some sort of wrong. You have power. When somebody sins against you, you do have a particular power over that person. You can lord a power over them where you can withhold forgiveness and hold the shame of that person's sin over them 
or throw back into their face what they have done. That is a particular power. That is a particular capacity to harm somebody else. But we are not called to do such a thing. We're not called to live as the spirit of this age. We're called to be contradictory to this cancel culture, contradictory to this vindictive attitude. We are called to love, which covers a multitude of sin. Come help me, Steve, please. We're called above all things to love people with a fervent love, starting first with the household of faith, first starting with the people of God. You're not going to get along with anybody in the church if you do not have the capacity to love to the point of forgiving offenses against yourself. Every single one of us can find a reason to be offended. You didn't shake my hand. You looked at me a certain way. You didn't sing the song I wanted to sing. You sing that song too much. He's not a very good preacher. You ignored me. They don't ask me to do this or to do that. And there's all kinds of reasons to be offended in the church world and in the church life. And there will be times where you will be hurt by somebody, whether they did it on purpose or unintentional. But the unity of the Christian church cannot go forward unless we have the kind of love that says, you know what, you harmed me, but I'm willing to forgive you 70 times 7 because I've been forgiven so much by Jesus. And if you, and if you whether if you are repentant or not, I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you and I'm not going to love you. And when you do ask for forgiveness, I'm going to readily give it to you. It's not that you don't acknowledge sin, but it's that you're willing, because of love, to forgive that sin done against you. It's that you have the capacity not to be offended and harmed and hold this, uh, this power over somebody, but you can let it go because it's a supernatural Love and bitterness and hardness of heart cannot make its way in. Above all else, we need this kind of love. We, we, it's, it's not an attitude that seeks to expose the sin of others. It seeks to humiliate people. No, as a Christian, I want to go. When I see somebody who's got sin, I want to go and cover them up and show them their sin in private. I want to go and show them and restore them and not just put them out in the open in their nakedness. But just as, as God, when he came back to the garden after they had sinned and Adam and Eve had, were hiding behind bushes and had fig leaves on, he had compassion upon them in that he covered them with animal skins. He could have sent them out naked in their shame and humiliation, but he covered them. He covered their sin. He covered their shame. Were there consequences for sin? Yes. So to cover sin, love that covers a multitude of sin doesn't mean you overlook sin. It's that you forgive it. And you allow means for restoration in people's lives because you want to see them prosper and be blessed. And you don't want to see their demise and their ruin. Love seeks to edify. It seeks to build up. It seeks to restore. It doesn't want to expose and ruin and humiliate. That's the spirit of the devil. And we must have this kind of love in the body of Christ, especially in times like these. We need the forgiveness and forbearance of one another. I need my wife's forgiveness. She needs mine. 
Because we're going to offend one another. I'm going to offend you as your pastor. I need your love and your mercy and your forgiveness. And you need mine as well. I close with this. I can't think of a better illustration to speak of how that love covers a multitude of sins than when I think about the parable of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15. This, this boy, he had this inheritance that was due him. He took it early. He went off into a foreign land. He spent it on prodigal living. He just wasted everything. He gambled it away. He spent it on harlots and, 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 and just partying and just wasted all of his inheritance that his dad had worked so hard for. He just spat in his father's eyes, in his father's face. And then he finds himself in a foreign land during a drought, sitting in a pig pen, feeding the pens, wishing he could eat the pig food. In the worst of the worst situation, he's hit rock bottom. And the Bible says he came to himself and he said, you know what? The servants in my father's house, they eat better than this. And I can be at least a servant. I will gladly and willingly be a servant compared to what I am right now. And so he heads back to his father's house. And what does the Bible say? The father, who I can, I can imagine, has looked in that direction every single day. He knew where his, his son headed off when he left. I'm sure he looked every single day. When he walked out that door, before he turned the light out at night, if you will, he looked in that direction wondering, is my son going to come home? And he sees him coming over the horizon. And the father doesn't sit there with arms crossed on the front porch waiting for him so that he can humiliate this prodigal son. But he runs to the son. He meets him on the road. He, he, he runs, which is disgraceful for the father of the house to run in such a manner. It's undignified. And he meets him. And the only reason he does, and the only reason he responds to the prodigal son is because the prodigal son has humbled himself. And he comes with a penitent heart. And he's willing to be nothing but a mere servant. And the father perceives this. And what does the father do? It's not a bunch of I told you so's. It's not lording the power over him because of what he's done. It's not exposing and humiliating him. The son is already humiliated because he's come to terms with his actions and his sin. And what does he do? I can, I'm sure he embraces him. And what does he do? He puts a robe over him to cover his filth, to cover his rags, to cover his stench coming from his clothing. And in the presence of the Father, with the robe on him and shoes on his feet and a ring on his finger, nobody would have ever known where he was and what he had done. Because love covers a multitude of sins. But the spirit of the world, a religious spirit, is the older son, isn't it? Father, how could you do this? He squandered everything. He's ruined your name. He wasted everything you gave him. Don't you know what he's done? I haven't done that. And you didn't take a fatted calf for me and throw a party for me and my friends. He says, son, what I have is yours. You have your reward. You have my love. But my son, here's what it comes down to is, but my son who once was dead is now alive. My son who once was lost is now found. Love covers a multitude of sins. That's the heart of God. That's his heart towards you. 
And above all, in the midst of the end of all things, we need to have this kind of love. Would you stand with me? <coughs> Thank you, Jesus. I want us to sing the love of God. I want us to sing that here in a moment. But let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you, God, for this scandalous love that we cannot even fathom. It's a love that doesn't even seem fair compared to human standards. Thank you, God, that you died for us and that you have given us power to live in this love. And you've poured your love out into our hearts. And it gives us hope and it gives us faith and it gives us bravery and courage to face the challenges that we encounter on a day-to-day basis. It gives us wisdom. It gives us the ability to have a sound mind that doesn't waver with the news headlines. Help us to live in your love, to live in your presence, to cherish fellowship with you to seek your guidance in our life. Oh God, give us this same love towards people, towards the people of God, towards our spouses, towards our family, our friends, our co-workers. Give us this kind of love that is just supernatural and will not make sense to the recipient. It won't make sense to anyone who's looking on. Give us this kind of love, Lord, that is absolutely necessary in such dark times. Help us, Lord, to be fervent in everything we do, Lord. Remove all laziness. Remove the neglect. Remove, God, all desire for comfort in our flesh. And let there be a fervency, our earnest love, an earnest faith directed towards you, God. Use us in this generation. Use us to be light. Use us to be salt. Help us to be who you are to this world, Jesus. Use us mightily. Help us to be brave. Remove all cowardness and timidity and fear. And help us to look fear straight in the eyes by your boldness and by your spirit and stand in the authority that you've given us as the church of Jesus Christ. Bless your people here today. Encourage somebody, Lord. Encourage them that you love them. Encourage them that they're not alone. Encourage them, God, that we're not without wisdom and guidance if we'll just seek and ask you. We're not without a good shepherd who has made everything available to us. Encourage us here today. Encourage us, God, to love somebody who it's been hard, really hard to love. Give us love for the unlovely. Give us love for those who don't smell so good and look so good and talk so good. Give us love for every single person, Lord. That's what's going to take in these end times for people to see something that is not of this world. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. Let's sing the love of God. Can you sing that? Sing that with him. Let's worship for a moment. The love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong it shall
about Peter who wrote this letter. Peter was a direct beneficiary of a love that covers a multitude of sins. After Peter being so braggadocious, if you will, that I'll never deny you, Lord. I'll even die for you. And Jesus said, Peter, after the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. You're going to deny me three times. And Peter is devastated that he did, in fact, deny the Lord three times. And Jesus, he makes a special point in John chapter 21 to restore Peter. Where he could have lashed him up and down and torn him to bits, he greets Peter on that morning on the, at the sea and he restores Peter. He doesn't humiliate him. He doesn't expose him. He knows the humiliation that Peter has already experienced. He knows the humility of Peter's heart. And he encourages him, go be what you're supposed to be. If you love me, go feed my people. Go feed my lambs. Be what you have called you to be. I love you. And I've covered your sin. And I've empowered you to go and live for me. Peter is not just speaking as some theoretical principle. He's speaking from experience, from Jesus firsthand. The power of love that covers a multitude of sin. If there would be anybody here, if you've got something against somebody else, you let that go. You give it to God. You walk in that love. If you need love for people who are arrogant and hard to love, those who may persecute you and bully you, those who are just get under your skin, God can give you that love to love them, that ability to forgive, the ability to show people what they've never seen, the love of Jesus Christ.